Well, we are in the scriptures once again this day, and we're going to be taking another step in our understanding of Psalm 51. And as I was thinking about this study today, I was reminded of um, the man Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You may know of him. He was a Baptist minister in Victorian England, and he was known as the Prince of Preachers. He had this big, booming voice, and he could, he could speak to a crowd of ten to 15,000 with no amplification but his own voice. I'm so uh, envious of a voice like that. But he was also known for his uh, quick wit. Uh, he was also known as a, an avid cigar smoker, and one time someone asked him, Mr. Spurgeon, when do you think you would have smoked too much? And he responded by saying, if I have two cigars in my mouth at the same time, that will be too much. <laughs> There's another time when he was um, preaching, talking to people about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a prince of preachers, he oftentimes had everyone just at the edge of their seat listening to what he had to say. And this one particular time, when he got done preaching, he, he descended the, the pulpit and went to the back of the church like he often did with his, um, with his elders and just greeted people on their way out. And this one occasion, a, an older lady came up to him and said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I want you to know that you are one of the most arrogant, self-righteous people I have ever met. And with a humph, she turned and walked out of the church. So there Mr. Spurgeon is with his elders, and this woman just said that to him. And so he, with his quick wit, uh, turned to his elders and said, she doesn't know the half of it. (laughs) I love that, because I think that that's an accurate statement about what happens when we begin to do what we've been talking about, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows us more and more of our need for his grace, which at the same time means he shows us more and more of what our own hearts are like. I was thinking about this phrase that um, the late Jack Miller once said, cheer up, you're worse than you think. I remember when I first heard that as a young Christian and things began to click for me. This paradox that to admit our need for God's cleansing, for his forgiveness, at one hand, seems like it's, it's a downer. But there's good news in that. We can cheer up. And admit even the worst things about us because there's grace and mercy to be had, to be experienced, and to be enjoyed, all coming to us because of Jesus. So uh, today we're, we're continuing in our study of Psalm 51, which is really giving us a backstory about Jesus. David was the king over Israel, and he was not only the national leader of this nation, but also the spiritual leader. And one day, he, in a, a moment when he gave himself over to the lust of his heart, took another man's wife, a woman by the name of Bathsheba, and had his way with her and sent her away. And he thought everything was fine until he got message back that she was pregnant. And it couldn't be excused because of her husband, because her husband was off fighting wars for King David. And so David, through a series of conniving and conspiracy, conspired with his military commander to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. And for a while, he just stayed in that hardness of heart until a prophet by the name of Nathan came and confronted him. And in a moment of severe mercy, as we talked about, God brought David to a moment of real repentance, 
of acknowledging what he had did, done before the Lord. And from that, we get this amazing psalm, Psalm 51. And as we mentioned last week, someone said that this is both the saddest and the most joyful of all the psalms. And so we began walking through that last week, and we looked at some very sad words. We're going to look at those just briefly again this morning, and then we're going to take a step and look at the next segment of that psalm. So we're going to call our study today simply this. Let me hear joy and gladness. That's a line taken from this psalm. So let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask the Lord to work in us this day with his word. Lord, as we come together once again and open these ancient scriptures, which is this beautiful and brilliant story that leads us to Jesus and gives us wisdom and insight for living our lives in these modern times, would you help us to understand exactly what David is doing in both naming his sin and throwing himself upon your mercy. Help us to understand that in light of the good news that we hear in the gospel of Jesus. And so meet us where we are this day, whether we come in here full of faith and confidence, conviction in the gospel of Jesus, or whether we are struggling. Some of us may be in this moment of of doubt and perplexity. Maybe uh, we're so confused that we don't exactly know what we believe. Wherever we are, or maybe if we're somewhere in between those two poles, Would you meet us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is how he began the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my uh, my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We looked at this last week, and if you'll recall, we just looked at some of the words he used here to describe what he did. He used this word transgression. This is one of those ancient, religious-sounding kind of words, and it simply means crossing the line. David said, I crossed the line. I didn't do what I should have done, and I did what I didn't do. I defied what you said for me. He also used this word iniquity, which simply means corrupt or twisted or crooked. It talks about the bentness of his own heart and the bentness of the actions that flowed from him. And he also used this word sin, which simply means missing the mark. It's an archery term. You aim at a target and you, you miss it, that would be the word sin. Except for David wasn't aiming to love Bathsheba or her husband. <laughs> he was aiming at his own selfish interests. And so last week, we made this important point. We are learning that we are more broken, messed up, rebellious, and yes, sinful than we often have the courage to admit. And yet, at the same time in Christ, we are more loved, forgiven, pursued and embraced by our Heavenly Father than we ever dared to dream possible. If all we had of Psalm 51 are these first four verses, that would be enough. It would be enough to lead us to Jesus and understand exactly how Jesus is the answer to our transgression, to our iniquity, to our sin. But David, as a master poet and a craftsman of words, isn't done yet. He he continues to dig and he searches to find the right words. And so let's listen to how this progresses. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That word, behold, just says, look or pay attention. He says, I was brought forth 
in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Some people look at this and they're like, what is he saying exactly here? Why is he bringing his mom into this? And some people speculate that what he's saying here is that his, his mother conceived him in an, an adulterous act or something like that. But that's, that's not what David is getting at here. Remember, this is poetical, poetic language that is intentional, trying to create a, a way of understanding or a way that words can reverberate and, and get inside behind our defenses. What he's doing here is he's simply saying that he participates in the fallenness of humanity. There's nothing unique about David that set him apart. He, just like the rest of humanity, is conceived with this sinful inclination to pursue his own interest. And so sometimes people refer to this as original sin. And theologians, when they use this term, don't mean necessarily the original sin of Adam and Eve, but everything that comes with that. The guilt and the corruption brought on the human race as a result of that original choice to go our own way. And so David is simply saying, I'm participating in that. I am just like everyone else, and that my heart goes astray. And that's why he's casting himself upon this grace and mercy. According to Alvin Plantinga, the writer, a bad strain has gotten into the stock so that now we sin with the ease and readiness of people born to the task. And that's sobering, isn't it? to think about that inclination and how easy it is for our hearts to go astray. Isaiah the prophet is tracking in this same lane when he once said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There's nothing unique about me. My heart is, is the same like everyone else's. It is inclined towards seeking its own way. You remember the author uh, William Golding, he wrote um, Lord of the Flies, and he once said, man produces evil as bees produce honey. What an interesting phrase there. We think of evil as just those big kind of things like David did. But evil really, in the scriptural term, is just seeking our own way of living our lives for ourselves. Man produces evil as bees produce honey. We have what Soren Kierkegaard once said, a sickness unto death. David's life manifested this sickness unto death when he pursued his own way. Instead of flourishing, death, rot, decay followed in the wake. I've mentioned this to you before, but one time the Times of London once asked a group of intellectuals, what is wrong with this world? And the intellectual G.K. Chesterton wrote back with simply the words, I am. I am what's wrong with this world. I contribute. I participate in it. And so that's what David is getting at there. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He goes on in verse 6 and says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In contrast to, to the bentness and brokenness of David's own heart, what God desires, he says, is truth in the inward being. This is this is the wisdom that God wants to teach David, and he acknowledges that. And so part of David coming to his senses and admitting what he had done before the Lord is exactly God's work in his life of inward truth. There's a writer by the name of Andrew Tabanco, and he had this book, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. And in it, he talks about how he was researching um, 
Alcoholics Anonymous and how people dealt with addictions. And so what he did is he, he traveled around to different AA groups in uh, New York State. And he describes this one time where a, a young, sharp-dressed man was talking about what was wrong in his life, and he was just blaming it on everyone else. He had been wronged, he had been hurt by others, which is true. I mean, that's the case with all of us. But that's the only reason he went to drinking, he said. And so he was talking about how one of these days he's going to get revenge and exact his pound of flesh. And at that moment in that AA group, sitting next to Dabanko was this man with dreadlocks and sunglasses on. And he, he leaned over and said, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. And Delbanco reflected on that and said, as the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, got to take control of my life and I've got to really believe in myself, the man beside me took refuge in the old Calvinist doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. What he meant by his joke about self-esteem was that he learned no one can save himself by dint of his own efforts. He thought the speaker was still lost, lost in himself, but without knowing it. David now knows it. There's no excusing what he has done. He can't blame it on anyone else. And this is actually a good thing. God desires David to come to this moment of truth within his own life. And that's what we're getting here. Paul David Tripp, I've shared this quote with you a few weeks ago, but I don't want to bring it back into play at this moment. He said, people, locations, situations don't cause me to sin. They're where the sin of my heart gets revealed. Sin is a matter of the heart before it's ever an issue of behavior. And so David is coming to this realization. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 put it like this. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. Now, there is an appropriate self-esteem. To know oneself as having been created by the, the God of the universe, that is, that is huge. But there's also an appropriate humbling of ourselves that should be the background theme of our life, as we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But to simply admit exactly who we are and what we've done, and to be able to cry out for grace in that. So then David says something interesting in this next verse that kind of hits us modern people as kind of weird. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now we kind of understand that second part of that phrase, but what does he mean by that first part? Purge me with hyssop. The commentator James Montgomery Boyce said, and these words are probably the most important words of the entire psalm, though they are probably the least understood. What does he mean when he says, purge me with hyssop? Well, let's just look at that first word, purge. He says it is based on the word for sin, and it literally means, de-sin me. David wanted to have his sin completely purged away. I love that phrase, de-sin me. What a great way of thinking about what confession before the Lord is. Is, Lord, I have done this. De-sin me. I have sinned, Lord, descend me, purge me, cleanse me. That's what he's getting at here. But what's this notion of, of hyssop? Purge me with hyssop. What is he getting at there? Well, there's a background to what he's saying here. It goes all the way back to the first time 
hyssop is mentioned in the Old Testament. Hyssop is this plant that would oftentimes grow in cracks and crevices, sometimes in the side of buildings even. And they would take hyssop and, and use this in different rituals in Old Testament Israel. And so, for example, the very first time it is mentioned is the time of the Exodus. You remember the story of God's people being enslaved in Egypt and crying out for deliverance. And God instructed his people to take a branch of hyssop and to dip it in blood that is in the basin and to touch the lintel, that is the door frame and the door post, with the blood that is in the basin. This messenger of death was going to flow through Egypt. And when he saw the blood on the door frame of the Israelites, he would pass over that. So that's the first time hyssop is mentioned. Another time is in the formation of the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. When Moses went up, you remember the story of him going up and getting the Ten Commandments from God and and Israel forming this covenantal relationship with the God of creation. And it tells us in the book of Exodus, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled all the people. So they had this sacrificial blood, and he would take the hyssop, and he would sprinkle the people and to declare to them the words of the covenant. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. For Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this backstory of hyssop, David is saying, Lord, cleanse me. I need a sacrifice, blood that can cleanse me. And so he says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David understands himself to be someone who is stained and unclean before the Lord, and he needs cleansing. So he uses this ancient way of speaking of that, purge me with hyssop. But he also says here, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. This is actually what God longs for us to experience and to know. For example, in the book of Isaiah, God said through the prophet, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like Clemson, uh, Clemson. <laughs> Clemson's orange. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God speaking to a recalcitrant and rebellious people who, who barely had any time for him. He wanted them to experience cleansing. And so we come to verse 8 in the psalm, and David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. What an interesting phrase. David casts himself upon the mercy of God, and he says, Let me hear joy. Let me hear gladness. Earlier he told us in this psalm, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's a New Living Translation put it, I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. The, the message paraphrased it like this, my sins are staring me down. He had something speaking to him, his own guilty conscience, until the point where Nathan came and said, you are the man. You're the man who has wrecked havoc and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. So David hears loud and clear his sin screaming at him, condemning him. And that's the background for him saying, let me hear joy. Let me hear gladness. 
There's this wonderful story that Jesus told about a, a young man who requested or demanded from his father his part of the inheritance. In doing so, he was saying to his father, I wished you were dead. And shockingly, the father gave him his share of the inheritance, and he went off to a far country and lived a wild life and spent the money and had the parties and just reveled. And of course, as it always happens, the money runs out. And he found himself starving, so he hired himself out to feed pigs. And in the Jewish mindset, there's basically no lower place you can get than sitting in a pigsty feeding the animals there. And so one day he comes to his census and he says, I need to go back to my father. And he comes up with this idea to say to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He gets to this point of desperation, of just wanting to be back with his father again, but realizing his father may not want to see him may not want him around after having declared, I wish you were dead. I don't want anything to do with you. But he makes his way back to his father. And Jesus tells us, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And as Jesus tells this story, this man begins rehearsing his speech. And it's almost like the father ignored him. It's simply enough that his father was back home. And so Jesus tells us, The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, what Jesus wants us to know, and what David longed to hear, when he returned back to God, was the stillness of those voices of condemnation, of judgment, to hear joy, to hear gladness, to hear celebration. And Jesus says that's exactly what happens whenever we return back to the Lord. That's what David wanted to hear. And that's what we get to hear if we have the faith to believe. David also says in verse 9, "'Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities.'" He's going deeper here and he's just saying, Lord, I want you to forget everything. That record of sin that I have, blot it out. I remember a time when I was in Calgary and leading um, a study with a friend of mine for a number of young urban professionals. And we were talking about this very idea about how when we come to God and admit what we have done, he cancels our debt. He forgives us of our sin. And I remember someone saying, basically, that's unjust. And someone might see David here requiring, or asking God to say, blot out my transgressions, my sin and iniquity, and, and thinking, wait a minute here, can David just say I'm sorry and get off scot-free? That sounds like injustice to me. How would you respond to that? I mean, David did commit adultery. It's actually more forceful than that. He took advantage of someone who wasn't his wife, using his power to do so, and then sent her away. And he did commit murder, even though he had it arranged to look like a, a military incident. So is David getting off scot-free? David knew that in order for him to be forgiven... There had to be a sacrifice. And when we come to the New Testament, we understand the good news of Jesus. We understand that God doesn't just 
sweep it under the carpet, but he actually deals with it in the death of Jesus. For example, in the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul said, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him. David understood himself to be dead in his trespasses. And he needed God to make us alive. And so Paul continues to hear hear saying that what God does is he forgives us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I came across this, um, excuse me, I came across this graphic one time that talked about what happened when Christ died on the cross for people like you and me. In that moment, our sin, our transgressions, our iniquity was laid upon him. The way the Bible put it is Jesus became sin. And so even though we get forgiveness, there still was a debt to be paid. And so in a sense, we get off scot-free, but that's not injustice because Jesus bore that debt. And so when David says, blot out my iniquity, God is able to do that. He's able to be just and to take care of the demands of justice, but also to us, lavishes grace and mercy upon us. So just a couple points of application, my friends, as we kind of wrap this up and think about how this applies in our life. Let's desire cleansing at the depths of our soul. It doesn't do any good for us to deny what we've did, to downplay it, to blame someone else. Rather, we should always and ever come to grips with what we've done. We should name it just like David names it so that we can experience cleansing. There's a time in the history of Jesus' people when they were literally going down the drain as a society, and God sent this this weeping prophet to them. And in this moment, he speaks on behalf of God and says, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I'm not unclean? You see, what the people of this time were doing was they would, they would go to worship on the appointed time and, and worship God outwardly, but inwardly their hearts were far from God. And they would leave the assembly and they would go and they would invent new ways of oppression and taking advantage of one another and hurting one another. And so he's like, don't think that you can just say, I've, I've washed myself and made myself clean. You can't do that. That's only the role of mercy in our life. Paul David Tripp in his book, Wider Than Snow, put it like this. When your sin really does become ugly to you, when it produces pain in your heart, and sickness in your stomach. You celebrate forgiveness, but you want something more. You want to be clean. In this moment of need and helplessness, you'll cry, purge me with hyssop, Lord. Dip the branch of your grace in the blood of your Son and cleanse me once and for all. What a beautiful way of putting that. Of course, we were to press Paul David Tripp here. He'd say, yes, of course, forgiveness and this cleansing come together. But what he's pointing out here is we want to be forgiven, but God wants us also to experience his grace washing us and making us clean. That's why the Apostle Paul would put it like this. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. 
And so God dips the hyssop branch of his grace in the blood of Jesus and cleanses us from sin. The Apostle Paul would talk about, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter would put it like this. You are ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And I don't know about you, my friends, but the older I get, the more precious the blood of Jesus becomes in my own life. As God shows me more and more of what my own life, uh, heart is like and what my own life is capable of, I'm so thankful for that precious blood of Jesus which cleanses us. There's this interesting passage in the letter to the Hebrews in our New Testament, in which the author says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since you have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, speaking here of the heavenly realms, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Interesting, two images he holds together here. We both need our hearts to be sprinkled clean because our hearts are the fountain of our life. But also, he says here, with our bodies washed with pure water. What is that a reference to? I submit to you, he's speaking here of what baptism communicates to us. Oftentimes we think of baptism in our, in our culture as, as us declaring that we want to follow Jesus, and there is an element of us saying that when we are baptized. But God is the one who speaks loudly in baptism. He is the one who is saying to everyone who witnesses it, whoever believes in my son receives the forgiveness of sins and receives cleansing. So it's no accident that when Jesus sent his church out to proclaim the good news, to proclaim his message, he gave them the sign of baptism which is a sign of cleansing. And what a beautiful sign it is. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, talked about whenever you apply water to your head, remember your baptism and how God speaks to you of the forgiveness of sins that is in Jesus. So my friends, let us cry out for mercy and desire cleansing at the depths of our, of our hearts. But here's the second point of application and final one. Let the gospel sing loudly over your life. David desired to hear joy. He desired to hear gladness. Joy from God, gladness from God over his, his cleansing, over the voices of condemnation. In ancient uh, Greek literature, there's uh, this example of these sirens who would pop up from time to time. And these sirens were seductive voices that would greet sailors and call them to themselves. And, and they would... Uh, get off their journey and go and be with these sirens and, and these sirens would destroy them and they would never escape that island. And so there's a story of Ulysses and the sirens in which uh, Ulysses knew that they were going to be sailing past where these sirens were and their seductive voices would be crying out to them. And so he instructed um, his, his crew to, to tie him to the mast. But he wanted his eyes uncovered because he wanted to be able to see the sirens and also to be able to hear the sirens, but he didn't want to be able to act upon what he would want to do. And he instructed his, soul, uh, his uh, sailors to put wax in their ears and to cover their eyes so that they wouldn't see. And they sailed past him. That's one strategy for, for trying to resist sin. But there's another one as well. And this one is captured for us in the story of Jason and the Argonauts, in which Jason sailed by this island of the sirens. And yet what he did, instead of tying himself to the mast so he couldn't um, get off the boat and go to them, was he brought Orpheus along. And Orpheus was this brilliant musician who just simply played a more loud and beautiful song than anything the sirens could hear. And it, it drowned out 
the, the sounds coming from the sirens. If I can take that illustration and just shift it a little bit from temptation to what we hear. My friends, I want to submit to you, we need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ singing more loudly to us than any voice of condemnation in our head. Like David, sometimes when we we think about what we've done, our sin stares us down and it's always preaching words of condemnation. But we need to hear the words of the gospel saying to us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's this beautiful passage in the prophet Zephaniah in which he said, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What an image of God. A God who wants to rejoice over people like you and me with gladness. His heart being glad that we've returned to him. He wants to rejoice over us. He wants to, he wants to quiet us by his love, to assure us that he loves us and he is for us. He wants to exult over you with loud singing. What comes to your mind when you think of someone exulting? They're celebrating, dancing. Rejoicing. And here the prophet says, God wants to do this with people like you, with people like me, and he wants to do it with loud singing. My friends, is that the image that you have of God when you return to him to ask for mercy? Do you have the picture of God like Jesus teaches us to have, of a father who runs to us, who it's just enough that we have returned to him, and he wants to get the party going? and to celebrate with us. My friends, that's exactly the kind of voice we need to hear. That's the kind of sound we need to have in our heads. That's what needs to resonate in our hearts. As the Apostle John put it, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So my friends, may you always hear joy and gladness coming from the heart of the Father through the Spirit all because of what the Son, our Lord Jesus, has done for us.